this time each and every Friday, Friday mornings, 7.40 Eastern Time. It's time for our weekly update. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us Friday mornings at this time for the weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, it's good to be with you. Despite the nine days, it's... Um and all that we have to think about in this period, but Shabbos is coming, and it's always a uh, good thing to look forward to. No question about it. An interesting uh, period of time now during the nine days. Um, well, we'll start with what's going on in Israel. Um, Non-Israelis cannot travel to Israel now. That's been extended until the 1st of September. We know about the exception for yeshivot and seminaries. Baruch Hashem, that looks like it's going in a positive direction. Uh, I know that Israel has now appointed a corona czar. If you know anything about Rani uh, Gamzu, please tell us. Uh, and on top of everything else, the prime minister is being uh, peppered by tremendous criticism. Is that criticism legitimate? Um, I mean, every leader can be subjected to legitimate criticism, and there's no doubt that uh, he makes mistakes like everyone else. And when he benefited from the uh, initial handling of COVID, and now they, the Prime Minister comes to the target and the focus because there's the resurgence and the necessary steps that have to be taken to, to address it. Um, I think that the, uh, the appointment of, Rafi, of uh, Rani Gamzu is uh, very important. He's a very seasoned uh, executive. He's a tremendous track record, and I think he can help coordinate uh, the response uh, of course, there are you know, always balanced problems with the Ministry of Health and with those that they're serving. The demonstrations last night were very boisterous. I was actually talking to somebody who lives right near the Prime Minister, and uh, you could hear it through the phone how uh, loud and, and boisterous the demonstrations were, and some of them got a bit out of control. Um, so there's a charged political climate, but you know it's fed when people are not at work and people don't see an, uh, an end to this yet. And here that's true also. And, uh, you know, the, the, the travel is at least till September. We don't know what will happen then. Right. And if they'll still be with the quarantine, and this means then that Roshan Yom Kippur, Sukkot, maybe travel may be in jeopardy, which I think for the tourism industry, what a devastating blow that is. And for all of those who have children who want to visit, who, like, uh, I, I go usually every Sukkot, and it's it's uh, devastating to think that we won't be able to, to be there, but health comes first, and we got to make sure we get past this. Now they're talking about a third wave in October uh, in various parts of the world, and including here, and we have to make sure to do everything possible to contain it. I mean, we'll, we'll talk, obviously, you know, more about what's going on in Israel, etc., but, but there are two things I want to bring up, Dafka, now, as you've uh, briefed us on, on the current COVID situation. The first is, and Malcolm, I don't even want to say it, and I know you don't even want to hear it, but there are rumors about new elections in Israel. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that that's not a tactic to build pressure for the opposition, which knows that it will do very poorly in an election um, that uh, for, to get the budget passed, which is something he needs to do. Uh, are there reasons, strategic reasons, why he might want to have an election? Yes, because of the breakdown of the opposition, the January trial. The, I mean, there are so many reasons that people have speculated about. I believe that this is right now a ploy. It doesn't mean it can't happen or won't happen. Um, 
you know, in the Israeli politics, one thing you know is that the only thing that's not, that everything is not predictable. There are no standards. So the reports, I think, though, are premature at this point. And that we won't, I don't think the Israeli people want to go to an election. They don't want to go through it again. It would be the fourth time in a little over a year. Wow. And it's just not... Some, it's a very expensive exercise. And then you'd have to go through it. Will they be able to go to voting booths? Will they have to do mail-in? Will they have to do other means, which uh, Israel's not really uh, adjusted for? Yeah, forget the money, which I know you know is not easy to forget. Obviously, it's expensive. But just the, the whole psychological thing that would be going on. Uh, it's huge. And, and plus the COVID. You know, like you just said, it's, it's another election. And, and we did observe, you know, what it was like for Israelis to go through that process all these times and then toss in the whole pandemic thing. I, I mean, it's just, it, it would be unbelievable if that happened. The other thing is, you know, you said nine days. Obviously, this is a time of year we want to emphasize good news if we can. We always want to emphasize good news. I didn't realize that almost 300 uh, Jews from Ethiopia have made Aliyah since the pandemic has started. And Malcolm, that begs the question that someone asked me this week. I thought it was a great question. Is there any country accepting new citizens during the pandemic, or is Israel the only one? Uh, I think that Israel's one of few, if anybody else, uh, accepting legal immigrants, helping them. uh, And, you know, that Israel's always subject to criticism on these issues, and yet nobody credits them with the extraordinary effort that this took to, yeah. to bring them in. Nobody would have criticized Israel for not doing it, because most other countries don't do it. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing is that what you said before, because of the COVID and everything attendant to it, we're not looking at what's really happening in the world. People are not focused on so many developments in, in adjacent to Israel, we could talk about the conflicts in Syria, but not the conflicts we know, the conflicts between Russia and Turkey, between Russia and Iran, Iran and Turkey, the the uh, expansion now of Russian presence in the Dar al-Assur, driving the Iranians moving more towards the Israeli border just in this last week, let alone the attack in Syria that took a number of um, Iranian militia or Iranian-affiliated, including a Hezbollah, uh, officer's life, and now Israel has to build up the defenses, uh, reinforce defenses along the northern border because the t- anticipation of attempts to strike back and to retaliate for for this, the 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 Syrian situation alone, you know, where there was a sixty military vehicles can converged on one place as the uh, the Al Talik camp in uh, in Dar al Assur to see the Russians uh, explaining the thing and moving just quietly, creating realities. The Iranians uh, are doing the same, and we can talk about, uh, we'll talk about Iran. Um, but I'm saying in so many places, Erdogan saying we will never leave Syria until the government falls, until Syria is free. Uh, they, they, the Libya is on the point of explosion where you have the great, you have Russia, Egypt, UAE, Turkey, um, others, Italy involved in, on various sides of this conflict, and Egypt authorizing this week the parliament for uh, Sisi to mobilize the troops to go to the Leban, uh, Libyan border if Turkey moves on the city of Sirtis, it said it would, which would open it up to moving eastward towards the oil fields, uh, something Egypt said they cannot allow because it's a direct threat to them. Uh, um, just uh, the Russians have had a massive, massive 
drill going on, a global drill involving hundreds of, of uh, maybe 150,000 uh, soldiers and others in a, in a massive worldwide drill that just ended yesterday. It began on July 17th and uh, with units from different um, uh, elements in the, in the northern and Pacific fleets, and you know they, they always incurring uh, incursions on our uh, defense lines in Alaska and elsewhere over the last uh, weeks. That they people are taking advantage of what they see. I mean, they have 56 separate drills with uh, 150,000 troops and 26,000 vehicles and equipment. It's massive, and th- this is really uh, these are things that are getting zero attention. Yeah, the only thing is, and, and believe me, I understand the uh, importance of uh, uh, this audience and people around the world being familiar with what you're saying. The one thing you have told us over the last couple of months is that at the minimum, thank God Washington is paying attention. Would you still say so? I would hope they're paying attention, but we don't see enough of a strong response to some of the situations, including Erdogan, Turkey's aggressiveness, uh, increasing aggressiveness in many areas. They are in the, in the Persian Gulf area. They are in uh, Libya, as I said. They're in Venezuela. They are certainly pressuring the countries in the region. They're moving in the Mediterranean Sea uh, to to develop their own pipeline and are protesting the East Med pipeline that Israel approved this week, and together with uh, Cyprus, it, Italy, and Greece our partners in it, which will bring energy from uh, Israel, from the Mediterranean to Europe, uh, very important, and, and Turkey is now threatening it, and also moving 15 to 20 ships, naval ships, into the uh, into a region of the Casaliorza um, Islands of Greece, owned by Greece. I mean, there's so many provocations uh, by him, let alone bringing 3,000 troops to Libya, and etc., and yet we're not seeing the kind of of forceful response coming to a NATO member and dealing with it. You also see in other circumstances where the message is not clear uh, about where we stand. The United States did cancel the F-35s to Turkey, and now the United States is buying them. Our own Air Force is buying them because they bought the Russian S-400 defense system, and this was the the punishment. But they also announced the Turk stream pipeline, which will compete with the um, the Greek-Israel-Cypriot one. And uh, so the, part of it is the question of whether they, the United States has been very effective with the sanctions on Iran and, and uh, being aggressive in terms of, of dealing with it. We see it in the economic impact. We see it on many, uh, many fronts. But at the same time, the... Um, I can't say that that these situations, many of them, get the kind of attention. Right. And part of it is the media not covering it. Part right. of it is government response and people, uh, governments here and everywhere else, deflected uh, and the attention is affected so on the COVID issue. Right. So they know about it. The question is where it is uh, where is it on their priority list? And we'll go back to Iran and some of the other issues in a moment. I do want to address what was uh, I think clearly the headline of the week when it comes to news from. Overseas, and that those are the images, the chilling images for anybody, and especially those who uh, uh, who come from a certain uh, history and background in the Jewish world of the, uh, uh, the prisoners in China uh, being led away. I mean, what's your take on what's going on there, and uh, how the world is and should react? Well, first of all, it's interesting. These are the Uyghurs. These are some, it's a Muslim minority population that is Turkic in cultural identity, and um, they have been long a uh, hotbed. There is a Islamist 
influences there, and uh, the government feels threatened, and they have gotten away now with this, um, with taking off, taking away. In this case, I think it's a million people. That's the estimates. Wow. Um, and yet, China has just signed a huge deal with uh, Iran, uh, which involves getting natural gas and energy from and oil from Iran and for them investing hundreds of uh, billions of dollars or many billions of dollars uh, in various projects there. Their, their relationship with other Muslim countries and the plight of the Uyghurs, not a factor. I mean, can you imagine signing a deal with a country that would have arrested the Jews yep. and, and yep. not protesting yep. and not standing up to it? And there isn't a sense of our vote of, of a Christ for one another. Um, and and they see the same pictures we see. So the the um, and the United States has protested it and spoken up about it. A few others have also, but uh, China unfortunately gets away with a, a great deal. And they are meantime under the cover of COVID and everything else, moving to expand their um, their uh, various international initiatives, uh, the Road and Belt Initiative, uh, which they're trying to make Iran now a hub. I think it's it's exaggerated in its import, but it's it is certainly significant regardless. But they are locking in energy resources. They are expanding their hold. And when they get into a country, they control vital resources. So they build ports, which they will then control. Well, Israel faced a problem because the Haifa port was supposed to be rebuilt. The United States has protested by China. The United States has protested. I'm sure they, they are diminishing the, the role that China will play. But they have money and they have workers. They send in people and they do projects all over Africa, elsewhere. What do you th- it's sorry. a quiet revolution. What do you think of the dueling consulate shutdowns between the U.S. and China? This is, you know, it's tit for tat and it's, you know, normal uh, for, for in the political and diplomatic realm. Uh, but it's reflective of the tensions between the two countries. And big picture, uh, big picture, you, you'd prefer if there was a warm relationship between the two, or this is not such a bad thing to have a division between the U.S. and China. What would you say, big picture was? Look, I think optimally, I would like to see the United States have good relations with everybody, especially the largest population in the world, and given their influence. But China is driven by one thing, and that's its interests. It votes against us in the U.N. all the time. It's now, you know, supporting uh, the Iranians in the U.N. It is opposing renewing the arms embargo. Uh, it almost never votes uh, with the United States or shares the interests except, uh, you know, where there's a particular need that they have. So they, and they align with Russia when it's convenient. But, you know, you can't dismiss this, its existence. This is not, a, you know, some island in the Pacific. This is a very important country. Uh, but I do think that we have to base the relationship on realistic considerations, including human rights, but economic uh, exploitation, their violations of their patent agreements uh, is a huge fa- factor for many com- companies. Uh, but at the same time, look at the trade. Look at where our masks come from. Look at where so much that we use every day comes from. I hear that. And, of course, as you alluded to, uh, there is a significant relationship, or at least there was until March, a significant relationship business-wise between Israeli firms in China. Uh, Would you say that's much different right now or not? No, I think it continues. They invest a great deal in Israeli high-tech. And, the um, you know, they bought some Israeli companies. 
so it continues, but I think that there is a wariness, that there is a concern, especially because the United States has put a lot of pressure on about that. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update here at JM in the AM. So uh, back to Iran for a moment. Uh, we've heard about and we discussed the explosions. We heard about and discussed the fires. This week we heard about... Uh, burning ships. They're attributing that to uh, accidents and weather. Um, and, and now we read about the possibility that some of what has been done now in mid-2020 is the result of different things that the Mossad did. And I'm talking about physical things in Iran that the Mossad did two years ago in 2018. What do you make of that story? I've seen it. I don't know. Obviously, this is all... Uh very speculative about what Israel did or didn't do. Israel has not uh, identified itself as responsible for any of these attacks. And, um, you know, that Israel has a lot of considerations. You know, the exposure this week of the Iran-backed um, PFLP terrorist cell that planned massive attacks in the West Bank and against Israel that was, um, thank God, exposed. And the arrest of, I think, um, 10 terrorists, uh, uh, led by Yasin Abu Salah, uh, and um, they were they were inspired, by the way, the, by the attack in the in Doleb in, in Dububin uh, when Rita, uh, Irina Schnerb was killed. Uh, so Iran poses a direct threat to to Israel on many fronts, including the rapidly advancing capacity in ballistic missiles and their nuclear program. And whoever was responsible, maybe it was domestic, uh, some domestic element. Maybe there were some planes involved. This is all speculation. People uh, still think about it being Stuxnet so many years later, or the son of Stuxnet. Um, it, it, it is hard to tell. But what's interesting is that Iran keeps saying if, if they find out that in the country is behind it, they will retaliate. There has been not, thank God, a retaliation, except the concerns about the Hezbollah-based attack. Um, uh, but the the um, the fact is that Iran warned Israel and others not to create a narrative about these attacks at the very start, because that would have forced them, in response to popular pressure, probably to to respond to it. So the the um, Iranians are not looking for an all-out conflict. I mean, this is it's too much to think that it's all coincidence that such a series of attacks and that really did set back certainly their centrifuge development, the ballistic missile program, other things uh, were affected and impacted by the series of events more than there were more than has been actually reported. But you know, it's one of the important, I mean, one of the things you just said that uh, I want to emphasize is that they can be bankrupt. It doesn't prevent them from still funding terror, which when you talk about governmental priorities is really unbelievable. It is very true. They, they, uh, don't care about their people. You know, this week Rouhani acknowledged that there were 25 million people in Iran. It's almost a third of the population have the virus. Wow. And, they, we, we, and you know how long I kept saying that there were satellite pictures of, of mass graves and that the numbers are not true, the numbers are not true that they're giving. Uh, tens of thousands have died from it. And he said the number will go up to 30 to 35 million. And the, the you know, even the reporting on that, when the president said it, 
until now, if a doctor at a hospital spoke to a reporter or, or publicly about the cases they were treating, they were arrested because they were trying to maintain the lie that this was contained and there was very few cases. The fact is that it's very widespread and their hospitals are not getting the funding and the equipment to, to fight it. It is not true that our sanctions affect medicines. It's the fact that they're diverting the funds for terrorism. Uh, they continue to aid Venezuela, which is in free fall completely. Uh, and, you know, you see the impact that they have lessened some of the money that going to Hezbollah, but they continue to ship the weapons, which is why Israel has to strike, that they uh, want to put their um, air defense system in Syria, which is Israel obviously can't allow to be become functional. Um, they are uh, involved in so many areas that the, the, and the people are angry about it. There's growing dissent. You don't hear about it again. There's no reporting about the anger of the Iranian people about the conditions under which they live, their currency is worthless. The Lib- you know, the Lebanon, their Lebanese allies are in free fall, and there's a lot of anger against Hezbollah, Nasrallah. The, the currency in one month went down 60%, and it was already in free fall before that. Uh, the Syrian economy and and uh, currency is is almost worthless, and you have 80% unemployment. And they look to them, they get nothing from Iran uh, to be supportive or economic development or anything of that kind. So you're right. The government sets priorities. He's now trying to bring in young people, Khamenei, to, and radical young people to assure that his ideology continues, even though we know that, the, that a very big proportion of the people reject it certainly the minority groups who make up the majority of the population, and the, um, and the young people. And yet, and they have arrested a lot of people. They continue to, to act against any manifestations. Uh, Iran is in, in dire straits, and yet the people don't matter. It's the ideological, extremist ideological agenda that drives them. They're building new facilities near in the Gulf of Oman, perhaps because they're gonna take action against the Straits of Hormuz and want to feel free without having to suffer the retaliation against their refineries there. How many uh, deaths did you say he acknowledged? From he didn't acknowledge the number of deaths. Oh, he didn't say a number. I, I, I'm saying to you... That it's over 15,000. No, I said there were tens of thousands. Google says 15 and a half, and I would think that uh, very often in cases in a country like Iran, the numbers are higher than, than the official people know about. If the president is saying you have 25 million cases... Right. So just take what's happening around the world, take the average, right. and see how much that yields. Of, of, and, and in a situation where medical care, and, and they had great hospitals and great doctors, but it's all deteriorated. Interesting. I'll tell you, a lot of places. Well, I don't know. Was Iran also in that category early on of places that were barely affected by it, like we see in Africa? And we saw They were affected immediately oh, they because were you have... All the Chinese doing the projects, workers, hundreds of thousands, and also the ones who came to Kum to study, who came from the infected areas in China, and no controls were imposed. They didn't right. even impose controls, let's say, on Kum and the holy sites where people come and they kiss, or they even some even lick the, the, the site there, right. that uh, no, no steps were taken to isolate the uh, Chinese people coming in to contain it, you know, put them in quarantine or anything else. So it spread like wildfire in the beginning. Can I ask you a question that will definitely demonstrate how little I know about this topic? The oil tanker uh, a problem off of Yemen's coast. 
I mean, it, there's no way it, to, to simply start transferring oil from a facility like that or a vessel like that to other vessels or to other you know, types of storage units? So it's, a, it's in a deteriorated state, and Yemen is a... I'm glad you raised it because, I, I mean, I was thinking about it, but I didn't want to get into it because it's, everything sounds so overwhelming then. Mm-hmm. But Yemen has become now another focal point between Russia and, and Turkey, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, as it has been for a long time. UAE is deeply involved. Uh, Turkey is trying to take over some of the critical strategic locations there. <clears throat> the Houthis have, have continued to move against... Um, Populations, even though there were, when there was attempted ceasefires, none of those things uh, uh, really hold, uh, and the situation there is devastating. And the uh, COVID has spread very widely in um, in Yemen, so it's a, it's an, another neglected story, largely. And they continue the Houthis continue to fire at uh, Saudi Arabia and missiles and other things. Uh, I think everybody would like to get out of there. It's a, it's a bottomless pit. The humanitarian crisis there is, is terrible. Um, and then uh, when it comes to a ship like this, which could cause a tremendous uh, ecological uh, danger, etc., uh, there's no resolve to deal with it. I would think environmental uh, advocates around the world would be, you would think. would be tossing amazing suggestions to them at this point and, and voluntary help, but I guess... Uh I don't know, maybe because of COVID, they're not able to. What do you think of Pakistan wanting uh, a seat on the United Nations Human Rights Council? Look at the other members. You have uh, countries like Iran and Venezuela and Iraq, all of them getting seats on the uh, Human Rights Council. That's why the United States is not party to it. It has proven itself over and over again to be a biased body against Israel and the U.S. And the resolutions uh, uh, that they have, there is only one country that is a separate agenda item, and that's Israel, and one that's always subject to a series of seven, eight resolutions that are automatic and others that appear periodically. Uh, the Human Rights Council is anything but that, and it, it, it enshrines the, the worst of the dictatorial uh, countries. So Pakistan would fit in fine there. It, it's so hard for good people to believe that, you know, that <laughs> the Human Rights Council is as corrupt and as uninterested in human rights as it is. It's just, it's just funny. Just take a look at the membership. I know. And, and you have, I'm saying for people, if they just want to have a, a sense of... of uh, and you see the corruption of all the UN agencies. Thank God the International Criminal Court, which was supposed to rule on uh, the case, you know, that the Palestinians want to uh, want to bring in, they're not eligible, they're not a state, that and Israel is not a signatory, and the United States, both the United States and Israel are targeted by the ICC in really horrific ways and in a consistent basis. The uh, prosecutor there, uh, we know, favors declaring uh, that they have jurisdiction. You see the corruption of, of the U.N. agencies. The United States has pulled out of, of many of them. Uh, President Trump, I think, pulled, uh, acted against the Human Rights Council and against other bodies because of these, these, these in, inbred uh, discriminatory practices. And the, um, you know, the, the question is, can U.N. be healed? And right now, you see who are the majority. You see the, 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 even when the Secretary General wants to make change, they're incapable, and, you, and a lot of these issues, they don't have an ability 
to resolve, not even with UNIFO, whose mandate, UNIFO, the forces on the Lebanese-Israeli border, uh, whose mandate is to, to monitor, to report on Hezbollah violations. Now, yeah. anybody who can't see the violations, you just go up to the border, you look down, you see it. Right. You see them moving their troops, to all of the encampments, moving weapons, the establishment of missile rooms in thousands, perhaps, but certainly in hundreds and hundreds of locations in, in southern Lebanon, now in Beirut. And they do nothing. They sit in their bunk. And, and when Israel asks for the renewal, but to strengthen the mandate, nothing happens. I mean, just the, the uh, an agency that has one mandate to fulfill UN Security Council resolution and to monitor the Hezbollah when, when it's the most blatant violation one could imagine. This is a setup question for a bigger question. What do you think of the Nancy Pelosi endorsement of Ilan Omar? They have a rule that they've adopted of endorsing the incumbents, and um, I think it's um, it's very regrettable. I, I think that without mention of her, her bias and um, allegedly anti-Semitic and the allegations of her, you know, corruption, and yet uh, she gets uh, the endorsement. So I think it's uh, it sends a bad message. And the reason it's a setup is because you and I, over the last few weeks, especially during COVID, and then of course during the protest rallies, the quote unquote equal rights rallies, etc., uh, you and I had spoken about the difficult position that Jewish leadership and I think our Jewish community in general is in. You don't know what to say, what side to take, if any. Maybe better to remain silent, etc. And I bring this up because Miriam Elman had what I thought was a great quote. She said, whether they self-identify on the political right or left, Jews who view Zionism as central to their faith and identity, and, and by the way, the majority of the organizations you are affiliated with under your umbrella, I think you would describe, basically, uh, view Zionism as central to their faith and identity, are increasingly being cast out as the uh, cast out of the, quote, community of the good, smeared as racists, Islamophobic, pro-genocide, and violent. And Malcolm, unfortunately, that's becoming, I think, much more of a reality. Uh, it's like being between a rock and a hard place. If you are, if you're a Zionist with any political bent, left or right, just because you have that label, uh, you can't win now politically in this country. Well, I'm not sure that you can't win. There, there are people who are proclaimed as pro-Israel and openly identify, even as somebody like Richard Torres in the Bronx, um, who has won uh, the congressional race there, it appears. <clears throat> and on, in other cases, you have people who are openly hostile winning in where they have significant Jewish populations, and the Jewish population's voting pattern doesn't seem to reflect the concern that you express and should be expressed. That's true. Um, that's true. Th that's one. Two... Uh, we have seen the debate over the platform. It's not final, and it'll be this weekend finalized. But, you know, there was an attempt, strong attempt, to get into the court uh, and, and incorporate occupation into the language. And Vice President Biden himself intervened to, to preclude it. There are things, I'm sure, that are critical and talk about uh, the need for a two-state solution and for, you know, Israel to, to be forthcoming. But, um, I mean, there was a concerted effort by many within the party to to make sure that it would not be an extremist expression. So that has by to be Sanders called. and Omar and the, uh, the Squid and all those other people who... Right, your point being that we have to acknowledge the victories. We can't just be despondent about... And also not to write off the whole party. I mean, right. there's still 
significant support, and we have to work harder to make sure that, that we, we maintain the ties. And you never know who wins in an election. We have to work with whoever is there. It doesn't mean that we work equally with people, who are those who I think take these horrific public stands and who uh, take uh, extremist positions, anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish. Uh, we do not have to engage them. We don't have to keep turning uh, a cheek. I think you give people a chance, uh, as we've seen the canon and others uh, expressing and uh, making statements that um, show regret if somebody is sincere in it. And, and the demonstration of that is in their actions afterwards, not just in the words uh, that come at the moment. And I've had the chance to talk to him and think, that it's sincere, but we will see. We, we test it. Um, but the, in the political realm today, you're right. We see the radicalization left and right. We see the, um, the you know, the failure to debate substantive issues. There's hardly any discussion of the matters we talk about, and there's the reason why I try to insert them because people have to be aware of of uh, you know all the things that are are, are taking place, and the you know the failure to put any emphasis uh, on it. When you see neo-Nazis marching in Pennsylvania, when you, you know, then, then covered by freedom of speech, when you, with swastikas and everything, and the other manifestations that we've seen of anti-Semitism, uh, we, we can't just ignore it and say that this is the way it is and, you know, throw up our hands and say, you know, just deal with the good guys. No, we have to expose them. Do you ever sit down uh, on a Friday night and say to yourself, I cannot believe I'm fighting the same battles I fought 50 years ago? I, I honestly, yes, I do think that, um, uh, I, I, uh, I, first of all, I don't know when, when I just remember making Havdalah and then I make Kiddush and I know something <laughs> happens in between, but I'm not sure what. But it's the uh, same so battles in many ways. Uh, I see how many hours we're on Zoom calls and, and conference calls and the time we were spending trying to address the panoply of issues. There are just so many things. Yeah, but my, but my point being that, you know, in all seriousness, 50 years ago... In Chadash, right. Shemesh, that we exactly. see. And, and if you look at the story of Tisha B'Av, of all the things that, that happened, look at the lessons that are contemporary for us today. Yeah. And, that, you know, somebody asked me yesterday about the, the story of... of um, you know, in Worms, the cemetery was desecrated this past week in Worms, Germany, which is a very old cemetery where Ben Gersh and many others are buried, and though we don't know, I think, the exact places, and it was desecrated significantly. And, you know, at the time of the return from Babo, they wrote to the Jews in Worms and said, look, we're going back. you you got to come back. And this, you know, that they made up the Shum, Mangensa, uh, Worms inspire three great communities, ancient, ancient communities, and the uh, they wrote back. They said, "You have your great Jerusalem there. We have our little Jerusalem here," yeah. and refused. And look at the price we pay because you know we don't appreciate when we have the opportunities to go to Yerushalayim to build Yerushalayim when people don't want to face realities, and they say that they suffered more during the Inquisition than any other communities because of it. Yeah, future of the Jewish peoples in the state of Israel, and it's a very good week to remember that. Malcolm, I thank you. An easy fast. We'll speak Bezrat Hashem Erev Shabbos Nachamu. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update right here at JM in the AM.